I would say that a really good place to start is just having a baseline understanding of who are our customers and what are their actual problems? Because even if they're somewhat similar to yours, they're not exactly the same. And the solutions that are going to work for them probably aren't exactly the solution that you're thinking of in your head. Anywhere where you're making an assumption that you're not very confident in, I would say is where there's a really great opportunity for research. If you don't have any of that those background insights on how people feel and what problems people have, then you're maybe just making too big of a risk. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become Top of Mind. We all know what it's like to experience a poorly designed product. Maybe the instructions aren't clear, the controls aren't intuitive, or it just straight up doesn't help you do what you need to do. It's a frustrating experience and a surefire way to lose customers. But the funny thing about a product experience is that when something is designed well, we barely even notice. There's a great quote from the book, The Design of Everyday Things by Donald Norman that captures why understanding your user is so important. It reads, design is really an act of communication, which means having a deep understanding of the person with who the designer is communicating, end quote. So to get the design of a product right, you need to understand the intentions of the person using your product. And to help us understand the principles of user experience and design, I'm joined by an experienced researcher who's worked with Airbnb, Everlane, and Facebook to help inform the design of products used by millions of people. Join me today on Top of Mind. I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Sodine Parr. Hey, how's it going? I remember reading that book, The Design of Everyday Things, like a couple of years ago when I was getting really into design. Is that like the Bible of kind of product design people? <laughs> I would definitely say that it's one of them. I think a lot of people don't understand what design is, or they've maybe heard of it and think that it's something that they don't really experience or know about. So one thing that I like about that book is that it teaches that the everyday things that we use are all designed as it's, as it's explained uh, in the title of the book. And when you use a, a bad shower faucet, you're experiencing bad design and when you use like a microwave or a stove and you know you know exactly how to use it without a manual, you're experiencing good design. So I, I love sharing the principles of that book with people to help understand that. And that's when it gets so weird too, is like bad design creates friction and like agitation. So you notice it, whereas really good design feels natural. And so you don't even notice it, which I think is just kind of interesting as a, just a concept for what your what you work on is like you're trying to find points of friction in like everyday everyday experiences that people are having with the products you work on. Yeah. And another principle I love from that book is when you experience that friction, a lot of people feel stupid or incompetent. Like, why can't I figure out this shower head? Like I always have trouble turning on showers and The book is, I think one of the first things they teach is that it's not actually your fault. There's a designer that designed this thing and they should have done a better job of making it easier to use. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, no, that's a great one. It's And it's super not for anyone's listening who just wants to kind of understand 
how design or research can even work. It's very high level and it's not super technical. I'd highly recommend it. One of the ways in which to get kind of customer feedback is from like net promoter scores. And you had a, you had a Twitter thread about this recently. That's why I'm bringing it up because it's kind of like a an easy way to get feedback because everyone at this point, everyone understands that data is important and feedback is important and net promoter mm-hmm. score or NPS will probably refer to it from now on is just like an easy way to ask someone, did you, did you enjoy this? Would you refer someone else? And that kind of is the a proxy for like, is this a product that everyone else will want? But you argue that it's not a terrific way to measure your customer's experience. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know what Net Promoter Score is off the top of your head, you've definitely experienced it before. It's the survey that you get with products that you use. It's usually the only survey question you ever see, which is, you know, would you recommend this product or service to a friend? And then you see the numbers one through 10 and you have to pick one of those numbers. There's a few reasons why I don't like it. The first one is that goals and metrics that you use should be specific. You want to measure something specific. And when you just ask a question, what do you think of this product one through 10? You're not really learning something very specific about your product. There's a lot of things that go into any product or service that someone would use. And by asking, what do you think of this one through 10? It's really hard to know how to interpret that information and what you would actually do with it. If someone gives you a two, it's not super clear what you should take away from that or what you could be doing better. So that's one reason. The second is when people are responding to a survey, you want to make sure that they're interpreting the question correctly. So with asking them a question and giving them the numbers one through 10, people could could you know obviously understand that one is bad and 10 is good. But for that whole range in between, you're not really understanding like what's a two versus a four or what's a six versus a nine. Studies have actually shown that when people answer NPS questions, they don't actually assert a really specific meaning to each of those numbers. But then on the back end, the companies, when they assess these numbers, are giving really specific meaning to what a seven means versus what a nine means. So my recommendation is instead of using an NPS style question, the first thing is to make the question much more specific. So let's say that your Lyft, you're, you're, you're working for the company Lyft, instead of asking like, would you recommend Lyft to a friend? You could ask a question more like, how is your experience with your most recent driver? Or you could be even more specific than that and say, did your most recent driver make you feel comfortable? So you can measure what it actually is that your team is trying to understand. And then instead of giving them a one through 10, you can maybe give them like three or five different options and actually write out what each option means. So did your driver make you feel comfortable? It could say, no, they made me really uncomfortable. Or I felt like a normal amount of comfortable or I felt super comfortable. Right. And that hopefully will be a metric that's actually tied to a specific team and their outcomes. And you can also, you can never guarantee it, but it's more likely that the people responding to the survey are actually marking the one that that means something that's tied to how they actually feel. Oh, that's a clever way of doing it. So that maybe, and for those listening who are in marketing, you would then work kind of with the research team to like implant a question in that survey that is getting a very specific answer to your marketing efforts or is tied somehow to the efforts you're trying to accomplish. 
Exactly. So, I mean, especially at a big company, if you have a super broad NPS uh, question, there's no individual team or person that that could actually be responsible for responding to it and making improvements. There's a bunch of different teams all working on different things. So working, you know, if you're a marketer, let's say thinking about what specific question or what specific data would really help you with your work and understand what's going wrong and what you could fix, you'll want to make the question specific to that. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. We've, we've so far just talked, talked about kind of passive data collection. Do you Mm -hmm. prefer doing surveys and kind of digital collection or do you prefer in-person kind of observation of people using products? Yeah, that's a great question. It's always better to observe people when possible, because if you are collecting a survey or even doing a user interview, what people say they feel or what people say they're going to do is always different than what they actually do in real life. So you're able, if you're able to observe what people are doing in real life, so let's say that you work for Whole Foods and you want to understand how people shop for, like, how do people shop for makeup when they're at Whole Foods? If you're actually able to stand in the beauty aisle at Whole Foods and observe how people are shopping, you're going to observe what people are actually doing. And it's, I guarantee it's not going to be the same as if you were to, you know, two weeks later, look through your data and say like, oh, these people all shop for makeup. Let me call and talk to them and see and and hear their take on how they did it. it it's going to be really different. So the the observational data is one piece. And then there's also the question of qualitative versus quantitative insights. So Quantitative insights have numbers behind them. For example, being able to say 60% of people answered this in a survey versus more qualitative data, which you know, you're usually getting from doing an in-person interview or observation where you're getting you know, likely deeper insights, but there aren't numbers behind them. Mm. And for people who are not professional researchers, I typically recommend qualitative research over quantitative. So just observing and taking notes on how people actually work with it rather than trying to quantify stuff. Yeah. Or doing, or doing one-on-one, one-on-one interviews. So, you know, calling people, video calling, meeting people in person, but just sitting down and having a conversation and understanding more about their behavior as opposed to doing it in a survey. Hmm. Do you have any favorite questions that you like to ask when you do those in-person or kind of one-on-one interviews that, that maybe on the surface seems very simple, but if you could unpack like why it's such a powerful question, that'd be awesome to hear. Yeah. So I would say that there's, there's a lot, there's a lot I could say there. One of them, one thing to consider is the structure of your question. So it's not just about what you ask, but it's the order you ask them. One really good rule of thumb is that you always want to start broad and then get more specific. The reason is going back to this Whole Foods example, let's say you want to start broad to understand a little bit more about the context of that person and their situation. And that broad information helps you to interpret the more specific questions that you want to get into later. So let's say this is a random example I came up with, but I'm going to keep going with it. You want to understand how people shop for makeup at Whole Foods instead of like going right into it and saying, you know, what are you, what are you doing in this aisle? Like, what are you buying here right now? Maybe you'll want to start with some questions like what brought you to the store today? What were you looking to buy? Or like, when was the last time you came to Whole Foods? How how many times have you grocery shopped this week? 
understanding their behavior on a super high level will help help you to interpret the later questions you're going to ask. So let's say that you learn someone actually just came in the store to buy bananas and now they're in the makeup aisle. That's really, that's really valuable insight to have, but you wouldn't have gotten it if you had just like gone right for the kill and started asking them, like, how are you, how are you deciding which shampoo to buy when you're in this aisle or something like that? And as far as specific questions I like to ask, it always depends on the context and and what you're looking to learn, of course. But one of my favorites, if not my absolute favorite, is the tell me about blank. And I like that because when you're doing an interview, you want to talk as little as possible and you want to lead as little as possible. And you want to understand like where this person's really coming from and what they find important, what they like and don't like. And the more that you say, you run the risk of accidentally letting them know like what you want to hear or you're pushing them in a specific direction. So if I'm at Whole Foods and I say like, tell me about what brought you to Whole Foods today or you know, how to tell me about how you got to this aisle or, or tell me about that shampoo that you just put in your cart. You're letting them really lead the conversation. And then you have the opportunity to ask follow-up questions. And I think that's a great job of laying out the context of how they even think about Whole Foods in their head too. Uh, maybe people are just like, oh, I, I just walked past, but other people it's planned. And then it's very purposeful that they came. And from kind of a marketing standpoint, that will dictate your whole kind of marketing strategy is like, are we going after people who are purists and only go to Whole Foods? And if so, like, when do they do it and how do they get here and what are they buying? Or are we going after impulse buyers who are just need, need makeup on the way to something, right? But you wouldn't get yeah. that if you and I'm, I'm guilty of leading right now where I'm saying, isn't that right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to do, but finding ways of getting unbiased context, I, I, I find that really important too. Yeah. And one other really helpful tip is to always ask about past behavior instead of asking about hypothetical behavior or future behavior. So what I mean by that is asking people, when is the last time you went to a grocery store, you know, before today and what, what grocery store was it? There's a very factual answer to that. And they could tell you about that experience. But if you ask, like how often do you go to the grocery store? People might have people might have an image in their head like, oh, I go to the grocery store once per week and I plan ahead super well, not just the one time I go to the store. Or they might tell you that because that's um, what they think is like a respectable or good answer. <laughs> but the reality is when you ask when is the last time that you went, they actually went yesterday because they were cooking and realized that they didn't have something and they forgot it. So always, you know, when you can always default to asking about what someone's done in the past or what someone's done most recently, because you're always kind of, you're always trying to get as much information as you can and making it as, as factual as possible. So that's, that's another tip that I like to share. Nice. That's a great one. Once you've done these interviews, what's your favorite way of summarizing it or turning that into action later on? Maybe you could give some insight on how, how you think about repackaging interviews. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in the first place, when you go into interviews, you want to have a really specific goal of what the outcome is going to be. I, I have heard some people talk about you know, their philosophy on research and how they approach research. And they say like, 
you know, we just always need to be learning about our customers. We should be talking to our customers like every week or every month. And I think when you do that, it's really easy to just talk to people aimlessly and you'll always learn something, but then it's really hard to actually have a concrete outcome and, and push that forward. So instead of just always be talking to people, I like to say that you want to have a really specific goal at a moment in time that you're trying to to get out of something. So let's say that let's say that this this goal that we had is we want to understand like what makes people feel comfortable when they're in a lift ride. So you went into the research with that goal. And let's say you talked to eight different people who just got out of a lift and you, and you you know tried to understand what makes them uncomfortable, comfortable or not comfortable. You want to take notes throughout all of your conversations. That's super important. And once you get to the fifth, sixth, seventh conversation, that's when you usually start to see patterns in what you're hearing from people. And those are the things that you want to focus on because those are those start to become some universal truths. Like there, it, it seems to be that one thing that really makes everyone feel comfortable is when their driver says hi and introduces themselves. That's a made up example. So when you have all your notes, those patterns will start to become clear. And for me personally, I always start by just looking at those patterns and typing out my insights in a document. I think that writing things out is a really powerful way to kind of form your thoughts and make sure you're getting your points across and that you actually have points that are clear and, and that you're ready to share. And I think you can share it anyway. Like sometimes I like to share insights in a document. Sometimes it's in a verbal explanation. Sometimes it's a slide deck. But I think what's most important is that you're sharing it with your team and you're sharing what they care about right now and what they can impact right now. And you're actually working together to make sure that those things get done. So you can document your insights and share them on a Friday. But I think what's really important is that you're being reminded of them as you're going about your work, like throughout over time, and you're actually working on that thing. So you want to make sure that you have champions for these user insights and that people are remembering this is why we're doing this. And these are the problems we're solving. And this is what we learned from the research. And we're going to bring that into all the decisions that we make going forward. If you're a professional researcher like I am, you can take on really big projects. But I think if you're trying to move super quickly, let's say that you're a full-time marketer, you don't have time to like go crazy and like mapping out everything about your customers and everything you could possibly want to know. When you frame it that way, it's going to take you so long and it's going to be hard to get buy-in to do that. If you say like, we really need to understand who are the people that make really great connections with their Lyft drivers. Like we want to create more users like that, or we want to find more users like that. Let's understand who those people are and then walk away with those insights and figure out a marketing campaign around it. Something like that. It's going to be much easier for you to accomplish that in a few days than if you start with a super lofty goal or just an, a not very clear goal. Right, right, right. Kind of just get those quick wins and then you're going to have bigger asks yeah. down the road. Yeah. At what size, because you are a full-time researcher, at what size mm -hmm. does bringing on a full-time researcher make sense? I'm sure it depends on industries and like mm -hmm. business models and everything like that. But is, is there any rule of thumb of how much, how many customers you need to have or size that makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that there's any clear rule of thumb. From what I've seen, it really depends 
on the founders of the company and what they value, maybe what they know about research. A very insights-driven company that cares a lot about really understanding their users and making sure that they're solving user problems and that their marketing and design is super informed. They might bring on a researcher as their 100th employee. Some companies, you know, they might not bring it on in, until it's their 1,000th employee or or 2,000th employee. So I've seen a really wide range. And I think that a lot of times it does, it just kind of just come down to the founders and what their focus is and what they value. One thing that I believe in is it's great to have a full-time researcher, obviously, because you have people that are constantly dedicated to learning more and more about your users and feeding that back into the teams. But I do think that anyone can do research. It, it is as easy as calling a handful of your customers and, and asking them questions and focusing on learning about them. So I think that you know even when there's five employees or 10 employees, a marketer, a designer, a PM, any of those people could be doing it. Okay, this is perfect. This is the kind of... Uh question I had framed here is like, let's say you're Mm -hmm. working for a software company. Maybe we do you want to do software or do you want to do a physical product? (laughs) Like which one uh, do you find more interesting? Let's say say software because I I was talking about Whole Foods before. So you can talk about software now. (laughs) Okay, let's do software. So let's say you work at a software company and you have no customer metrics or like no Mm -hmm. customer experience metrics that you're measuring yet. What would be the first like research mechanism that you would put in place if you had zero budget, but you had the time to set aside and do it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm personally not a data scientist, but I work with a lot of data scientists. And I think that one, or just metrics in general that I would care about are would be around the user behavior on the site. And I assume that most startups are probably tracking that. So I think at the bare minimum, I would want to know like what pages are people visiting? What things are people clicking on? What does the whole end-to-end funnel look like? You know, if it's if it's a website that's driven towards conversion, like how are people converting? And if it's more of an engagement-based digital product, just understanding how people are engaging with it. That is a really helpful starting point because you can see bad spots in the data or things that don't really seem like an optimal experience. And that's a great opportunity for improvement and experimentation. And it's also a good opportunity to do more research. So it happens very often that we'll see something in the data that seems off or just doesn't seem ideal. And that's a really helpful starting place to say, like, we want to dig into this issue more and maybe talk to some users who are facing this issue. So I would say that that's one thing. And the other big thing that I would say to start is you just want to know who your users are. I think that a lot of people start companies with the idea that I'm going to solve a problem for people who are like me, or even if they don't say that consciously, that is what they're doing. Like They're aware of their own problems and they're trying to solve those problems for other people. So I would say that a really good place to start is just having a baseline understanding of who are our customers and what are their actual problems? Because even if they're somewhat similar to yours, they're not exactly the same. And the solutions that are going to work for them probably aren't exactly the solution that you're looking, you know, you're thinking of in your head. So having a company and starting from a point of really knowing what those user problems are, I think is another thing that I would do, you know, as you're working on your beta or as you're even just formulating your idea for what your company should be in the first place. Are there any low-hanging fruits that are that are 
pretty relevant to kind of early com- early stage companies that a a kind of research mechanism we just kind of talked about would solve a lot of kind of early stage friction problems that companies might be having? Yeah, I think that I think the the biggest one, like I said, is understanding what what people's real problems are. So, for example, let's say that I'm building software geared towards small businesses. I might be familiar with small businesses because my mom runs a flower shop and I'm really familiar with the issues that she faces running a flower shop. But I also have the idea that this software could work well for someone who owns a moving company or someone who owns a retail store. And I kind of build this software with the hopes that those people are going to buy it. I would say that that is a great opportunity or or a great illustration of how you can actually talk to those people and understand their issues a little bit more and uncover some things that you might be assuming about them. Anywhere where you're making an assumption that you're not very confident in, I would say is where there's a really great opportunity for research. It's kind of, there's probably some triangle of like how big the assumption is, how confident you are in it and like what the risk is if you get it wrong. If you're investing a ton of money and time into an assumption and the risk that the assumption is wrong is super high, then that's probably a good opportunity where it's like, okay, we can, we can slow this down. If we could slow down our timeline by one week and talk to a handful of customers and really sit with the team and understand what those insights mean, that could save you just a lot of, a lot of time and heartache down the road. Do you have any tips for how to identify whether you're making too many assumptions? Yeah, I would say that with a lot of things, I mean, just taking the time to sit down either by yourself or with your teammates and to think through all the current assumptions in your product, like doing some sort of workshop or a brainstorm, you could probably identify them pretty easily. I think, again, like, let's say, let's say we have this flower shop example, we're building software for them. You're probably making assumptions about how tech savvy someone is who runs a flower shop or what issues they have in their day to day or whether they could be a good candidate for someone who wants to buy a subscription software. So I think, I think simply sitting down and mapping out all of, all of those things and and putting them to paper, you can then kind of take that and basically assess which one of them you're which one of the assumptions you're you're more or less confident in and like i said also which ones are more risky than others and figuring out those candidates of where it would be valuable to do some research and talk to people and yeah on test those test those assumptions that you're making yeah yeah and then you can kind of get an idea of just okay maybe we got to tone it down and stop making so many assumptions if uh, you're realizing that your whole business model is based on a few very specific things that just might not ever happen. Yeah, and I think any company any company has to have assumptions or or literally any decision that you make at work you're you're making some assumptions but it's just making sure that you're being aware of what they are and being aware of when there are opportunities to kind of reduce the risk of those assumptions that you're making. But yeah, they're always going to exist. When when someone like decided that they wanted to build a cryptocurrency, they were making an assumption that that was going to be something people are interested in. There's no way that you can know that for sure, but you could at least understand a little bit about people's attitude toward the economy today. And you could understand 
how people invest. And you could use that information to kind of say like, okay, I think, I think based on what I know about people and how they see money, I think that I am pretty confident that this could work. If you don't have any of that, those background insights on how people feel and what problems people have, then you're maybe just making too big of a risk, too big of a risk. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of ties back to the design of everyday things is like use existing behaviors to your advantage when you're trying to create something brand new. Like if people already know how a navigation works because it's used on Facebook and billions of people have used that navigation, start with that. And then you can make incremental changes to the interface as your users become more comfortable with how it works. But you don't start with something totally uh, brand new because there's no previous behavior associated with that. That was something that really stuck out to me is like, there's a very step function way of like finding existing behaviors, even your crypto example, just seeing, oh, certain people are like, everyone's using tap on their cards. Now people want more transparency. All these things were kind of leading towards the bigger change, but it wasn't like they just made it out of thin air. Yeah, definitely. And there are for design specifically, there are lots of principles that you could look up online, like principles for design or principles for good usability. And there are certain things that you should just do. And you can actually evaluate your own website yourself without talking to users using those principles and understand like, oh, this is a potential area where people could be getting confused. Let's kind of, let's let's see what we could do to fix it and improve it. And usability is one thing I didn't touch on as far as low hanging fruit. This is more on the on the product and design side, but people need to be able to like literally figure out how to use your products. Going back to the whole shower head example, if people can't figure out how to use it, that's a problem. So some low hanging fruit is to do usability testing, which basically means that you're observing people using the product and making note of areas where people are stumbling and having problems so you can go and fix those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last question for you here, Sarah. I know for me as a like... I pay attention to marketing things. So now everything I look at, I'm just observing what the marketing, what the, what the strategy was behind it and trying to make assumptions about how they did it. Are there any mm-hmm. kind of consumer experiences that you go through on a, a that you, do you have during your day that are just totally ruined for you now? Cause you're always thinking about like, Oh, I could have done that better or, Oh, they should be asking <laughs> these questions. Yeah. Well, one thing, I mean, one thing that I pay attention to since, I'm familiar with working with marketplaces is how companies are structuring content on the internet. And I'm also very highly aware of how companies are collecting user inputs. And one thing that I've noticed on Twitter lately is when you scroll through Twitter and you see a tweet, like I see a tweet that's funny. And I guess I follow the funny tweet category. It'll ask me like, do you think this tweet belongs in funny tweets? And it says yes or no. And I think, I think that's super interesting. And I've been noticing that across a lot of websites where content is generated by the masses and it's on a platform and the platform is trying to figure out how they can make it a better experience for consumption and and trying to take these billion pieces of content and information and actually create it into something that's enjoyable and usable. That's like a, a problem that I think is really difficult to solve. So I find it interesting to see how different companies are trying to do it. Totally. Those like kind of micro inputs of like data just kind of trickling in. You don't really notice it as a user. It's like, oh, just a, a random button I can poke. But one I noticed <laughs> is on YouTube is like they to test how effective their mar- their ads are, they'll like have a banner that comes up and says, Do you remember we showed you an ad like three days ago? Do you remember do any of these companies ring a bell? 
And I thought that was yeah. a really cool, like similar to the same idea of like them trying to train their algorithms to know content better. I think that's a huge, a huge opportunity. Yeah, it's super interesting. And especially when people are so overwhelmed by all the by all the content that's out there, it makes sense that they're trying to get smarter to help people consume it in a, in a more manageable way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Sarah, this has been awesome. You've actually, you're going to be releasing a course of around how startup founders and product and marketing people can talk with their customers early on. How is the best way for people to find out about that? Yeah, so I like I said earlier, I want anyone to be able to get better information about their customers and either build the right thing for them or figure out how to acquire new customers and and market to the people who are actually going to buy their product. Like you said, a lot of companies are not able to actually hire full-time researchers. So I would love to give marketers and product people the tools that they need to actually figure out how they can talk to customers and understand more about them. I haven't launched it or announced it yet, but it's coming this summer. And the best way to follow along is to follow me on Twitter, just at Sarah Sodine Parr, which is my full name. And I'll be announcing it this summer. Wicked. I can't wait for that. It's going to be great. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, Sarah. That's been super helpful. And make sure to follow along. Thanks. Bye, Stuart. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real-life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.